Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. Approximately 44 years ago, I had the great good fortune to visit Mecca for a short period of time with my sheikh. The following selection of floretry bubbled to the surface of my consciousness shortly after returning from that journey. The piece is entitled, In Remembrance of Mecca. Allah's city serves as a fountain, flowing to quench our cries. Amidst the rocks and sand, everywhere barrenness meets one's eyes, and yet the heart is drawn to this land. God is the manifest and the hidden. God is the manifest and the hidden. The pilgrims are like drops united, swirling below God's throne. Streams seeking the ocean, returning to their celestial home. Those who fathom depths of devotion, yea, neither do they fear, nor are they grieved. Yea, neither do they fear, nor are they grieved. Sweepers of the mosque, travelers of love's path, fighters of the great war, seekers at Allah's door, keepers of the shoes, people of sacrifice, my heart remembers you. The aura of grace and majesty fills the watch of the night, freeing hearts from Naf's snares, allowing our essence to take flight. Joy to those lost in zikr and prayers. God is the light of the heavens and earth. God is the light of the heavens and earth. Some spend their hours at Ibrahim's feet, Others stand near his son, souls on altars of love, offering their darkness for the sun. Touched by mercy one rises above, be not one who longs for that which sets. Be not one who longs for that which sets. Birthplace of the last of the prophets, a mercy for life's dean that extends beyond death. Who knows where prophetic feet have been, or what has been touched by holy breath. And Muhammad is the best example, and Muhammad is the best example. Humanity lost in ignorance, what do we know of life's worth? Our hearts are deaf to light, 
Jew children of Mecca seek rebirth and spend their lives struggling for love's heights. God is the rich and we are the poor. God is the rich and we are the poor. Sweepers of the mosque, travelers of love's path, fighters of the great war, seekers at Allah's door, keepers of the shoe, people of sacrifice, my heart remembers you. Mecca's past tells of beautiful truth, a clear guidance for all. Be humble, be not blind, an invitation to heed God's call for messages contained in God's sign. We do not exist save to serve our Lord. We do not exist save to serve our Lord. Sweepers of the mosque, travelers of love's path, fighters of the great war, seekers at Allah's door, keepers of the shoes, people of sacrifice, my heart remembers you. Today's short story is entitled, Cul-de-Sac. The king had been obsessed with fate and death for as long as he could remember. He didn't know precisely when his intense preoccupation with these intertwined realities had begun, but begun it had, and gradually the ideas of death and fate had come to consume nearly every waking moment. Some children had a favorite toy which played a central role in their early lives. Other children had an imaginary friend who kept them company through difficult times. As a boy, during adolescence, and into young adulthood, the king's constant companions had been thoughts of these daunting twins, death and fate. The triggering events which helped precipitate his condition may have been the many wars that had been fought during his childhood. So many of the kingdom's families had lost fathers, sons, and brothers during their collective dark nights of the soul. Or maybe the terrible plagues which had swept through the lands, taking the lives of numerous men, women, and children along the way, somehow had planted a deadly seed of another kind deep within his subconscious. Undoubtedly, the foregoing sort of factors played contributing roles, but the king suspected that the real source of his anxieties and fears started with a stranger who seemed to have paid a visit to the boy's room one night a long, long time ago. Quite frankly, the king had not even been sure whether what took place that night was a dream or something else, but the experience had stayed with him. Whenever he permitted his thoughts to drift in the direction of the event from his childhood, the whole scene would occupy his consciousness like an invading force. The experience was just as vivid now as it had been some three decades ago when it first occurred. As young boys are wont to do, he had been lying in bed, listening to the sounds of the night, thinking about the events of the day, planning what he would do tomorrow. When he heard a noise of some sort, like someone clearing his or her throat, the noise had come from the corner of his room, which was always in shadow at night, 
even when the full noon shone through his windows as it did on this occasion. All his attention was drawn to that portion of the room. He peered into the darkness of the corner, and although he couldn't see anything, nonetheless, he felt a presence of some sort. He knew, with certainty, he was not alone. A strange fear descended on him. He became paralyzed. All he could do was look and listen. Every so often he remembered to breathe. While only a few minutes probably actually transpired, the event seemed to take hours to unfold. Finally, the boy, who would be king, heard a voice arise out of the shadows. The voice was neither masculine nor feminine. The words had a quality which penetrated to the very core of his being. It said, Prince, if you wish to live forever, then you must never hear either the complete words or music for... Something was whispered softly. What was whispered was unclear. In his mind he tried to concentrate on recreating what had been said to him, but the words remained indistinct. The boy managed to summon enough courage to stammer, What did you say? There was a mocking laughter that softly began echoing in the room. The boy was near tears. The laughter was replaced by an eerie silence. Then, once again, something was whispered. Seemingly, this time, the words came from somewhere very near to his ears, even though the boy could detect no one near the head of his bed, as he managed to shift his eyes left and right, while the rest of him remained paralyzed. This time the words were said a little more loudly, yet still were somewhat muffled. The boy thought he understood what had been whispered, but he wasn't completely sure. Please, said the youngster, can't you say the name of the song clearly? Only the sound of the wind could be heard. Otherwise, the passage of time was marked by grains of quiet. The strain of intently trying to listen for who knows how long, as well as the stress brought on by his fear, had completely tired the boy out and as he was drifting off to sleep, he heard, If you follow these instructions, you will never die. Soon after the eventful night, the boy's father passed away. The prince became the new king, and from the moment he ascended the throne, he banned all music and singing in the kingdom. Although the boy believed he knew what had been whispered to him that night, he wasn't quite sure. Therefore, the safest thing to do was to create circumstances that would completely control what might happen in relation to hearing music and singing. The boy king's royal edict had a profound effect on others. The kingdom had a long, rich musical history with many talented musicians, singers, and writers. Now, all the singers, composers, orchestras, and musicians were forced into a state of quiescence. The king dispatched spies throughout the land. Whoever was caught singing or playing music was thrown into prison. The king didn't want to take a chance that somehow, inadvertently, he might hear the wrong song in its entirety and as a result bring his life to an end.
In addition, all schools were instructed to begin teaching children that music and singing were great evils. Children were given generous rewards for reporting any violation of the king's proclamations that they might witness in their homes or neighborhoods. Scholarships were rewarded every year to those students who wrote the best essays about the music problem. From time to time, of course, people throughout the kingdom continued to die. However, the king lived on, and therefore the purpose of his proclamation was served. The king became so convinced of the wisdom underlying his ban of music and singing, he began to engage in high-risk activities, confident he could cheat death as long as he observed the conditions of that momentous night of his childhood. The king's boldness and daring deeds became the stuff of epic poems, which had to be recited in monotones for fear of any hint of musical melody creeping in to a recitation. One day, while traveling in a very remote region of his country, the king met a young woman and fell deeply in love with the maiden. Happily, the woman felt the same way towards him as the king did towards her. Soon thereafter, the two were married, and following the honeymoon, they returned to the king's castle. Although initially the king was extremely happy with his wife, events took an ominous turn not too long after they were married. The king had been walking in the gardens which surrounded the castle, thinking about his queen, feeling very fortunate with respect to having her as his wife and enjoying the love he felt for her, a love which was growing with each passing day. Just as he had become ensconced in a very present reverie concerning her, he heard something that deeply disturbed him. Singing was drifting down from the window of the queen's room. Unmistakably, the voice was that of his wife. He rushed into the castle and fled up the stairs toward the queen's room. He burst into his wife's room without seeking permission and angrily roared, Just because you are queen, this does not give you the right to break the royal ban on music and singing. The queen was shocked and puzzled, shocked at the king's behavior and puzzled concerning the ban. She had never heard of such a proclamation since news of and from the kingdom hardly ever reached the distant part of the country where she had been raised. She explained this to the king. While her explanation helped calm him a little, nonetheless he remained agitated and upset. The king had never told anyone about his childhood experience. He did not feel comfortable in doing so now. Nevertheless, he could not have her singing due to his fear of what he had been told that night many years ago. He said with great emotion, Please, if you love me, you will not sing any more. I beg you not to sing. Is there something wrong with my voice, she asked. No, there is nothing the matter with your voice, he replied. You sing beautifully. I simply cannot have this sort of thing going on in the castle. If I let you sing and do nothing, then I will become known as a royal hypocrite. I have thrown many people into prison who have violated my ban on singing and music. So how can I let you sing, but not extend the same right to them? Well, inquired the queen, what would be so wrong about permitting people to sing and play music? Why not free the people you have imprisoned and do away with your ban? 
I can't explain it, said the king, but you don't know what you are asking of me. All I can say is that if you love me and care for me, you will refrain from singing. The queen's face registered mixed emotions. I do love you, she said, and if it means all that much to you, I will stop singing. On the other hand, I think you need to understand that singing is very important to my sense of peace and happiness. And so, in a way, you don't know what you are asking of me. In fact, I feel very badly for the people of your kingdom, because they are being prevented from doing something which has been nurturing their souls for centuries. If you cared at all about your loyal subjects, if you loved them as a king should love those who have been entrusted to him, then you would reverse your silly and arbitrary ruling. The queen's words entered the king's heart like a bolt of lightning. He could not deny the truth in her words, nor could he overlook how important a role singing and music played in the life of his wife. If he loved her, how could he possibly deny her the great source of joy and satisfaction in her life? If he loved his subjects, how could he have treated them so cruelly? How could he permit his own selfishness to adversely shape the lives of so many people. Yet he loved life dearly, and furthermore, if he were to die, then what about the sadness which his wife, whom he knew loved him deeply, would experience in relation to his demise? The immovable object of his childhood experience was being placed into opposition with the irresistible force of his love concerning his wife. What should he do? For many days he reflected on this matter. His heart was being torn apart in seemingly irreconcilable directions. Eventually, after struggling with the issue for some time, he realized he loved his wife more than he loved his own life. She was the empress of his heart. She was the ruler of his destiny. He repealed his earlier edict. He freed from prison those who previously had violated the ban in seeking to make amends, he lavished great wealth on those whom he had wronged. His wife was so pleased with him that she fell in love with him more than ever before. The two were very happy together, and the kingdom was happy for them as well. Despite his change of heart, the king could not stop worrying about the forces which he had set loose with his new royal proclamation. He became entranced whenever he heard his wife sing, and yet there was a sweet sadness that permeated this listening, as if each time he might be hearing his own swan song. The king was nearing his fiftieth birthday, and in honor of the occasion, the queen had arranged for a special celebration. She wanted the party to be a surprise, so for months she induced many of the courtiers to become co-conspirators in her secret preparations. The night of the king's birthday came, and he was taken to the great banquet hall on a pretext. There, waiting for him, was his beloved wife and many of his adoring subjects who had long since forgiven the king for his earlier ban on music. A great meal was served. Entertainers performed before, during, and after the meal. Towards the end of the celebration, the queen stood up and announced that to commemorate the occasion, she had commissioned a song to be written. The queen herself would sing the song, 
and she would be accompanied by a small group of musicians who had been especially assembled for this occasion. The ensemble came to center stage. The music began, and the queen sang. Tears came to the eyes of the king, not only because of the great beauty of the melody, words, instrumentation, his wife's voice, and the festive, joyous atmosphere of those attending the celebration, but because somehow he knew in his heart that this was a song about which he had been warned so many years ago in his childhood. This was what had been whispered into his ears that night. As he was listening, he tried to feel the fullness of life, its joys and its sorrows. He looked at everything in the hall anew and appreciated it for being part of his life, and he was grateful for having been given so many years as he had lived and for having been opened up to the great love of his life. As he was surveying the crowd and the musicians, the king noticed that one of the musicians was intently looking at him. The man was playing his instrument wonderfully, as if the king were the only one in the room for whom he was playing. The king knew whom he was looking at. The king knew that death had come for him that night. After the song was finished and the crowd, including the king, gave a standing ovation for a performance which would take its place near the top of the great musical tradition of the kingdom, making a legend of the queen, the musician who had been focusing on the king throughout the performance silently motioned him to meet on the balcony behind the stage. Slowly the king made his way to the balcony where the two were alone. Death said, Why didn't you listen to the counsel you were given so many years ago? You could have lived forever. You allowed yourself to be maneuvered into a street from which there is no escape. Things might have been otherwise. The king looked at death. His eyes passed over the land of the kingdom which was bathed in the light of a full moon. His vision went into the hall where he could see his wife talking with people receiving their congratulations for her truly marvelous performance. He had never loved his wife more than he did at that very moment. Then his eyes returned to the face of death. He said, Sir, we all seal our own fates. We can't avoid this. His gaze went back to his wife. I just exchanged one fate for a better one. Now, let us get on with the business at hand. The title of this week's musical interlude is Finally Home.
from the outback of Australia to the rainforests of South America, from the frozen tundra of Siberia to the plains of Serengeti, from the Himalayans of Asia to the white cliffs of Dover, from the geysers of Yosemite to the glaciers of Antarctica, you are listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. For the past several weeks, I've included an announcement in the Sufi Reverberations Podcast that talks about the free download of a software package entitled Bridge. Those announcements allude to a Patreon project with which I am associated. The purpose of that project is to raise money to underwrite the costs of gifting books to different libraries in North America. The books that are to be gifted consist of the 40 books that I have written over the last several decades, and the subject matter of those books covers an array of topics, from Islam and the Sufi path, to religion, education, constitutional law, spiritual abuse, sharia, quantum physics, cosmology, evolution, psychology, political science, medicine, and 9-11. More than 45 years ago, during a textbook prejudice campaign conducted in Canada, in which I participated shortly after stepping on to the Sufi path, I learned that most people in North America have a very poor and often distorted understanding of Islam as well as the Sufi mystical tradition. My Patreon gifting project seeks to help alleviate the aforementioned sort of ignorance by gifting quality research materials that are written from an Islamic and a Sufi perspective. You can find out more about this project by visiting https colon backslash backslash www.anab a-n-a-b hyphen whitehouse w-h-i-t-e-h-o-u-s-e dot com and click on the menu 3 option of the drop down menus and then click on Patreon. This week's edition of Meditative Essays is titled Humility. Humility is not exactly a growth industry in today's world. However, Sufi masters maintain this quality is of fundamental importance to the mystical path. Humility is both a fruit of the path as well as a key which, God willing, opens the door to further possibilities of spiritual growth during the mystical journey. Nonetheless, one does not seek humility as a means to something else. Humility has an intrinsic spiritual worth. To varying degrees, most of us are lacking in humility. There are different reasons for this. Some of this relative deficiency in humility is due to the times in which we live. From a very early age, many of us are taught, both within our families and in schools, to be somewhat aggressive and assertive in promoting ourselves. Being able to impress other people helps create opportunities. We have to let other people know whom we are and what we can do. As long as one can deliver, as long as one can back up the self-promotion with competence, skill, talent, and intelligence, then a certain amount of cocky confidence is considered by our society as not only acceptable but admirable, if not necessary. 
Such confidence is thought to be an important ingredient in the quest for success and accomplishment. On the other hand, too much of this self-promotional assertiveness becomes annoying and often is counterproductive. It rubs people the wrong way and generates friction, conflict, and animosity. To grasp the boundaries of propriety in this area of self-promotion, not to mention the more difficult challenge of acquiring humility, can be a trying and humbling affair. Many hard lessons concerning self-promotion and humility have to be digested during the socialization process involving family, friends, school, and work. Unfortunately, the problems of learning how to live within the boundaries of propriety or learning the more demanding qualities of humility is exacerbated by many aspects of modern life. For example, all too many professional athletes, television and movie stars, recording artists, cultural icons and politicians think of arrogance and self-centeredness as virtues. Indeed, relative to many of these people who don't seem to know the meaning of propriety, mere cocky self-confidence would seem like the essence of humility itself. The quote-unquote example being set by some of these paragons of excess and braggadocio is having an increasingly devastating impact on grade schools, high schools, colleges, and universities. The atmosphere they help to create is conducive to the breeding of all manner of arrogance, pride, and conceit in the minds and hearts of those who worship at the altar of their idols. Power, money, fame, talent, and intelligence have a way of eating away at the line separating a certain degree of self-confidence and the slippery slope of pride. However, we all have the potential to cross this line, even if our circumstances should be entirely modest and without, for example, celebrity status of any kind. The Sufi masters speak of the pharaoh within each of us. This is our tendency towards feeling superior to others. The pharaoh within us is naturally inclined to a sense of self-importance and operates according to the belief it has a right to be self-indulgent, self-centered, and vain. Our pharaoh considers itself to have an exalted place in the scheme of things, no matter how small the desert may be in which it reigns supreme. Occupying such a lofty place entitles us, so our pharaoh believes, to treat other people with contempt and disrespect. Conversely, our pharaoh does not tolerate being on the receiving end of contempt or disrespect from anyone else. Much of the quote-unquote dissing phenomenon that is current and leads to so many ugly confrontations is an expression of what happens when pharaoh meets pharaoh. According to the practitioners of the Sufi path, each of us is charged with the task of Prophet Moses, peace be upon him. We must convey the message of God to our pharaohs, both collectively and individually, to let our people go. We must struggle with our pharaohs in order to journey towards the promised land of humility. To achieve humility is, by the grace of God, to be modest in all things and to give deference and veneration to others. Humility is about having no expectation towards others concerning what is due to one. Moreover, when one is wronged or dealt with unjustly, one is gentle, mild, and forbearing in response. Humility is to prefer others to oneself. Humility is to have an 
heartfelt respect for the essential worth of all human beings as well as all of creation. Humility is a matter of being ready to yield to the wishes of others and knowing when this yielding is appropriate to do with respect to the requirements of spiritual etiquette. Humility is filled with the wisdom of understanding the rights which have been given to others by God. There is a humbleness about humility which places things in perspective. To have humility is to be aware of one's faults and weaknesses. Therefore, the person of humility neither swells up with pride at the sound of praise, nor is that individual deflated when criticism comes her or his way. One cannot have humility without being immersed in submission before in servitude to God. In fact, this submission and servitude is the fertile soil out of which the flower of humility grows. Sufi masters are very adept in showing initiates how to till the soil of servitude. Spiritual guides do this through their own beautiful example of servitude and submission. Sufi sheikhs also care for the seeds of humility which have been planted in human beings by God. They provide spiritual nourishment and protection for the struggling seedling. In addition, spiritual guides are very skilled in helping to remove the weeds of the individual's ego, which threaten to strangle the growth of humility. In this respect, one kind of offshoot of the ego which is particularly dangerous and must be removed from the garden of the soul is the weed of false humility. The ego has a great capacity for mimicry. In order to serve its ultimate agenda, the ego can take on the external appearance of, among other things, humility. The ego can appear meek, mild, submissive, humble, respectful, and deferential. However, all of this is a self-serving act to enhance its own sense of self-aggrandizement. For example, when others comment on how humble and respectful the person of false humility is, Inwardly, such a person exalts in the rays of praise extended to him or her. People of false humility live for this sort of notice and acknowledgement. For them, humility is not a spiritual issue, rather, it is an issue of ego gratification. People of false humility are very annoyed if people fail to take notice of their quote-unquote spiritual condition. Moreover, when the desired acknowledgement is not forthcoming, they tend to get moody, sullen, and withdrawn. They often feel people do not appreciate their true spiritual greatness. Differentiating between true humility and false humility can be quite difficult. To do so takes either A, the experienced eye and understanding of a Sufi sheikh, or B, the spiritual training which can be gained through the sheikh. To have humility does not mean the individual is devoid of self-esteem, However, this sense of self-worth has nothing to do with the sort of cocky confidence spoken of earlier. One has esteem for the spiritual self because it provides us with the opportunity for realizing our relationship with God. One values the spiritual self because it is a unique gift of God, which contains hidden within it a vast array of spiritual treasures, one of which is humility. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Music.